Good morning, everyone. So glad to be with you today in the house of the Lord. Uh, aren't you glad it stopped raining and the sun is shining? <laughs> None of you like floated off. It's good, you know. You can put up your rain boots for a couple of days, hopefully. Um, uh, I was, I was um, talking to a, a good friend of mine this week, and he was telling me a story about uh, one of his family members. Uh, we've known them forever, lifelong friends of ours, and. This guy is kind of going through some difficult times in his life. I know many of you can relate, and uh, just been just been a trying season for him. But he's discovered he he thought that his his wife handles all the finances, and and he thought that she had been paying their tithes. And I don't know if they had a miscommunication or exactly what happened, but at the end of the day, he realized, man, we haven't been paying our tithes. And so he determined at the beginning of this year, you know, he was, he was upset about it, and he said, man. I can't go back and fix it, but I'm going to be a tither this year. I'm just, I'm just determined I'm going to be a tither. So he starts tithing. And like the week he starts tithing, true story, uh, it starts raining. You know, like, like it rained for like a week. Well, he's a contractor. And when it rains like that, they got rained out for an entire week. You know, he gets paid by the hour. And when it's raining, he's not getting paid. Now, how many of you know, when you go a week and you've got a wife and three kids and a house note and a car note and everything else, that can be very detrimental to your life. Can I get an amen? amen? Well, his company has a policy, and they called him and said, Hey, you know, when you get rained out all week, we try to do something, so we give everybody a $150 check for the week. Well, that's good, but that ain't going very far. But, hey, he's, he was grateful, and so he went and picked up his check, and he said, Listen, I'm going to pay my tithes off this $150. And uh, he said, I'm just determined that this year God's going to come through, and we're going to be tithers, and we're going to be faithful to God. So he, so he wrote his tithe check. How much? How much was this tithe check? $15. I asked because moving that decimal point is very complicated sometimes. So 10%, move it one place. Uh, so he writes his, his, his check and he pays his tithes. Suddenly the next day or so he gets a phone call from his boss. And he says, hey, come in. So he went in to talk with him for a few minutes. And then he said, hey, while you're here, we just want you to know that uh, you do a lot of good stuff around here. You do a lot of good work. You're a great employee, and we appreciate what you do. I know it's been a tough week. We've been off of work for a while, and I know you got your $150 check, and, and that's good, but we want to give you another $300 on top of that just because, just because. We don't know why. Now, listen, for this guy, $300 is a lot of money to some, not a lot of money to others. You know, it probably didn't pay every bill he had, but for him in that moment, it was a recognition and a sign that, wow, God is really on my side. And my bosses who don't live for God and don't understand the principles, God used them anyway uh, to, to return to me and to bless me. And, and he was just celebrating that this year we're going to be faithful to God, and already God has become faithful to him. So many times I, I talk to people who, when they first become tithers, it's, it's often difficult when you take out 10% of your income and say, I'm going to give that to the Lord. It gets difficult. And, but time after time after time, I hear testimonies about how God come through, comes through and what to some might be little ways, but to them is the biggest testimony that God is really paying attention and he's on my side. I want to challenge you this year to be a tither. I know that life gets in the way and, 
And sometimes we, we have good intentions uh, to be faithful, but over the course of the year we forget or we get sick or the kids get sick or the car breaks down and we get off track. But this is a great time to get back on track and to be faithful this year and watch what God will do in your life. When you're faithful to God, when you're tithing offering, His word and His promises are sure that He will come through for you. It's tithing offering time here at Triumph Church. As you prepare your gifts, uh, let me speak to those online just for a moment and um, challenge you as well to be a tither this year. I know many of you, uh, this is your church, though you might live in other cities, other states, maybe even different countries. But week after week, uh, you log on and Triumph is your church and this is your worship team and, and, and we're your pastors and this is your church family. Hey, just because you're watching online, it doesn't exempts you from the commands and also the promises of God. And if you are faithful to God, He too will be faithful to you. I want to challenge you to be a tither this year. You can see online there on ways that you can get involved. All right, do you have your gifts ready? Let's hold them up to the Lord this morning. People say, Pastor Randall, why do we hold our gifts up? I tell you this regularly. It's because it's a sign. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that though our, our gifts are being given into the hands of mortal men, they are actually being received by our high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. So this is a sign. Father, this is to you. It's going to the church, but this is to you, and we're trusting in you to come through for us. Father, we thank you for every tither, every giver, every family in this house that has chosen to trust in you. Lord, let this be the greatest year yet. I pray that debt would be abolished. I pray that uh, those that are praying and, and dreaming of owning their own home, I pray that this would be their year. I pray for those that are needing a new job or needing a financial breakthrough, that this would be their year. I pray for those that are needing help in their family, uh, in their bodies, that they need, might need healing or restoration in some way. Lord, this would be their year as we are faithful to you. Father, open up the windows of heaven over our life and bless, bless, bless. Lord, may this offering be multiplied. Let it go above and beyond to accomplish every purpose that you've sent it to this house for. I thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ushers, you may assist us at this time. While they're doing that, I want to remind you, I talked to you last week about our 72-hour prayer chain where we'll be praying and fasting beginning on Thursday. We'll eat lunch together, and then we'll begin our fast, uh, going and breaking our fast on Sunday right after lunch. Lots of ways you can get involved. One of the things we're going to be doing in conjunction with that is having a 72-hour prayer chain where we're asking members of all three of our campuses to come together as one church and sign up to pray for one hour. Maybe you want to pray for one hour a day or whatever you want to do, but you can sign up for a time slot in that 72 hours, and we want to have a continuous prayer chain for 72 hours asking God to touch our nation, our city, our church, and our lives. Does that sound good? I'm going to put this slide up on the screen to give you a little bit of information how you can sign up to be a part of that. We've got one online sign-up place where you can go and, and uh, for all of our campuses. This is the web address at the bottom. If you don't want to write that down, here's all you have to do. Uh, we're fancy these days. Text FAST AND PRAY to 9900, and they will automatically send you back the link, and you can click on there and sign up. 
Okay, or you can just write this uh, link down and you can go straight there. So if you want to be a part of the prayer chain, we want to make sure everybody signs up uh, so we know who's praying. We make sure that everything is covered. Our pastors, our elders, our leaders will all be praying. And Friday night we'll have a, or Saturday night we'll have a wonderful prayer meeting here together. But make sure you sign up. Fast and pray to 9900-9900. If you're watching online, uh, fast and pray, F-A-S-T-N. The, the letter in pray, not and, not fast and pray, but fast in pray uh, to 9900, and they'll send you the link there as well. You got it? Some of you need another minute. Okay, you're still writing. All right. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. Don't drop your Bible, Randon. That's bad. It's a two-edged sword. It'll cut you. Y'all okay this morning? I'm excited to be here. John chapter 4, verse 1, reading from the New King James Version. If you're there, would you say amen? Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Father, I thank you for your presence that's here today, for the ministry that you have already done through the power of your Holy Spirit in this place. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear from you and to be challenged by the power of your word. Speak to us today, O oh God. Speak through me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today and tomorrow are incredibly important days in the history of this nation. In case you are unaware of what is happening, uh, we are inaugurating our president for four more years, President Obama, for four more years, uh, and also we are celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Nod your head at me if you're aware of these two facts. Okay, so, uh, uh, if you're not aware, uh, turn on the news, turn off Sports Center or ESPN or, or the Weather Channel, whatever it is you watch, turn off Grey's Anatomy and watch the news. Um, incredibly important weekend. Um, I want to put you in the context of what's going to be happening there uh, and try to show you, just give you a little piece. I want to shake the cobwebs off of your history and your, what you know about Washington, D.C. for a minute, okay? When President Obama is sworn in, he'll be standing on the steps of the Capitol. As he's sworn in, uh, you will see he, the steps of the Capitol face across the mall. The mall is that, that water pond-looking rectangle shape. How many of you nod your head if you remember? You've seen picture, pictures of that? Okay. The opposite end of the mall is the Lincoln Memorial. The Lincoln Memorial is the big statue of President Lincoln sitting in the chair uh, with the columns around it. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? I should have got you a picture. Okay. I'm sorry for that. 
So these two things face each other. It's all the more important today uh, and, this, and this week because of, uh, of what is going on. When President Obama takes his inauguration, he will actually use two different Bibles when he's sworn in. One of them is the Bible used by, that was used by President Lincoln. The other one is a Bible that was actually the first, the Bible that Martin Luther King Jr. used when he preached his very first message in a Baptist church many, many years ago. It was his actual Bible. It then became what he called his traveling Bible. And he would, everyone he was going around traveling and preaching, he would take that Bible with him. And a man in Georgia took it and restored it and sent it to President Obama for this specific day. So he's going to be using two very important Bibles by two very important men. Why is it important that he's looking across at the Lincoln Memorial? Because President Lincoln uh, was uh, one, of, one of, if not the most important president in the history of the United States. Uh, you know that he is given a huge portion of the, of the um, credit for leading our nation in the freeing of our slave, of of the slaves, and uh, how many of you saw the link the movie Lincoln that came out? Uh, fascinating movie to me. It was a little slow at times, um, but it was really fascinating as it gave me a look into the politics and what was happening in the day. You know, we read about it in history books, but it really came alive. Uh, and I discovered what something that I didn't know. That the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, I knew it was an was a, was a act of war, and he wrote it as the commander-in-chief. But what I didn't realize was it, is, it can be argued that what he did was actually illegal. That he didn't have the right or the power to do what he did, and yet he did it anyway. And, and, but I'm grateful to President Lincoln that he had the bravery and the courage uh, and, and that was able to be led by God, I believe, to step out anyway and to do everything he did to force this thing to happen. And it took every bit of effort and work that he had, uh, even some under-the-table dealings and everything else. But at the end of the day, I believe that God's will was done. Now, on those very steps, standing in front of President uh, Lincoln's statue is where uh, and, oh, and by the way, uh, it's, this month marks the 150th anniversary of when he released the Emancipation Proclamation. Don't know if you knew that or not. Another thing that's happening this month, it's, or uh, this year, is the 50th anniversary of where Martin Luther King stood on the steps in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And he de- delivered his, uh, one of the most famous speeches in the history of America, I Have a Dream. Okay, so so get a picture of what is happening. All these pieces coming together. 150 years ago, uh, Lincoln, who was memorialized at one end of the mall, uh, gives the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stands in front of that memorial and delivers the I Have a Dream speech uh, that many of us could probably quote much of it even today. And now, this weekend, on the other end, uh, President Obama, uh, the first African-American president in our history, as you know, stands and is inaugurated for his second term with his hand on two separate Bibles, one owned by President Lincoln and one owned and used by President Obama. Uh, The history coming together this weekend, you need to know and recognize. It's very important. Um, And so as I I study, one of the things I love about Martin Luther King is that... Some people have good intentions and do good, do good things uh, for our country or for the world. 
but their inspiration comes from places that I'm not really fond of. But Martin Luther King Jr. drew his inspiration from the Word of God. Even as a young boy, he would sit around the dinner table and the Bible would be read to him and he would hear the stories and, and the Word of God would be, was, was placed down in his spirit. And it began to build a framework in him through which uh, he launched his ministry and through which uh, much of the civil rights movement uh, was pushed forward. The Bible, you probably know he was a Baptist minister as well. And the Bible gave him his belief for love and nonviolent protest. It was specifically Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where, that inspired what he called dignified social action in the civil rights movement. Dignified social action. And the, his powerful conclusion in his I Have a Dream speech can be found, much of his inspiration came actually from the book of Isaiah. Um, and then the other thing about him that I just learned as I was studying about him this week, you may know this, but as I was studying this week and just thinking about all the history, in his very last speech, he compared himself to Moses in this way. When Moses was in the wilderness with the children of Israel, he had led them out of Egypt, he had led them out of bondage, but they were still not in the promised land. So they had been there for 40 years. Moses is coming to the end of his life. He goes up on a mountain, and the Bible says he looked across the river and could see the promised land, but he himself never entered there. He died before he could. And so in his very last speech before his life was taken, taken Martin Luther King actually says, I, I believe I'm like Moses, and that I have been up on the mountaintop, and I have seen the promised land. And while I fear that I myself may never enter there, I'm confident that we as a people will make it. And uh, wow, that was to me a prophetic statement about his life because uh, you may know that shortly after that he was, he was killed, he was assassinated, but uh, his dream has really become to come to pass. And as we look at this weekend, uh, I believe it is another step in the fulfillment of his vision of what President Lincoln saw, what our forefathers saw, and what I believe God saw when he called America as a nation. I want to talk to you on this subject for the next few minutes today. A message of Christ. A mission of Christianity. A message of Christ and a mission of Christianity. I chose to read to you today from the book of John. And as we talk about this subject, it's, you say, well, why would you read the story of a woman at the well and living water? And it doesn't really add up, Pastor Randall. Where are you going? Well, you have to understand the context of what is happening at this well. Jesus comes into Samaria. Now, he has left Judah, and he has come into the city called Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. Because in, uh, in 930 B.C., I believe, uh, after David had united the, the kingdom of Israel, all 12 tribes together, and Solomon ruled them together, after Solomon had died, the 10 tribes uh, ten of the northern tribes separated, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they separated off. They became the nation of Judah. The other ten tribes became the nation of Israel. Now, when you hear the term Hebrew, this is a term that refers to all twelve tribes. 
But when you hear the term Jew, it is actually a term that's derived from just the southern kingdom of Judah. Notice Judah and Jew. Are you with me? So when Jesus, he comes as a Jew through the tribe of Judah. And he's a Jew, but they hate the Samaritans. Samaritans to, to the Jews are the worst, lowest people on the planet. As a matter of fact, in John, I believe it's 8, verse 48, the, the scribes and the Pharisees actually call Jesus a Samaritan. They are not uh, giving him a compliment, but this is literally the worst thing that they can think of to call Jesus. They know the worst thing that somebody might could call you. And that's what they're calling Jesus. They hated the Samaritans. They literally despised them. Uh, for since, since they were divided, they had been fighting back and forth for almost 1,000 years. For 200 years after they were first divided, they literally fought battles against each other, each other with swords and spears and bow and arrows. And, and these, two, uh, these two kingdoms, which were really brothers that had, had, been, had come from the same father, are now fighting against each other and have turned on each other. As you go through the course of history... Uh, Omri, who, which, who was one of the kings of Israel, purchased a plot of land, a hill actually, and built the city of Samaria, and it became the capital of Israel. Later on, uh, around five, uh, 580 B.C. or so, they came in and built a temple there on Mount Gerizim uh, because they didn't want to go to Jerusalem and worship in that temple, and they hated the Jews, and the Jews hated them, so they built their own temple to worship there. And they had what would be defined as uh, Jewish-type worship. So it was based out of the laws of Moses, but because they had been infiltrated through uh, marrying uh, people from other tribes and allowing their gods to come in and their idols to come in. Now it was this, it, it was kind of like Jewish worship, but it was very different because they were, they were polytheistic in many ways and they were offering sacrifices to other gods and other idols. Uh, and they were going against the commands of God. What would happen was if you didn't obey the laws of Moses in, Jer in Jerusalem or in Judah, you could actually flee to there and you could have freedom to almost do what you will. They were sacrificing innocent children. It was a difficult, difficult time. Now, you know as uh, over the last few months how we've talked about how Israel and then Judah were brought into captivity uh, under five other nations. And as they went through these five nations, one of the reasons that the Jews hated the Samaritans so much is because the Samaritans... Um, had now become, they, they weren't all Hebrew anymore, but they had uh, married and brought in so much of other nationalities that they at times would say, yes, we're Hebrew, we're the brother of the Jews. And if it benefited them, they would claim the Jews. But the moment that the political... Um, climate changed and it did them it benefited them to not be Jews anymore or not be Hebrews anymore they would declare that they were a totally different nationality and had nothing to do with the Jews and they would join the enemies of the Jews in attacking them so you can understand after a while how the Jewish people would be very frustrated and angry uh, that you're, one day you're my brother the next day you're my enemy which is it choose one and over a thousand years they literally hated and despised each other. This is going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until Jesus enters into Samaria 
uh, and he sees this woman at this well, and they have this conversation where Jesus says, give me something to drink. She says, you know, who are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We don't have any dealings. You don't even, like, they would walk by each other and not even address each other, not even acknowledge each other. There was so much hatred. There was, there was so much uh, uh, bitterness, so much anger, so much strife that had built up over the centuries. So Jesus says, woman, listen, in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says, okay, it's not about this water, but I can give you living water. So the woman says, okay, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are, you, where are you going to get living water from? And she takes it back to the root of their issue. Watch. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? So, so, so now, remember, they hate each other, and she thinks that Jesus is saying to him that he is better and greater than her father, her ancestor, who gave her this. So who are you to put yourself over me? Do, do you hear the, the spirit with which she's talking? Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain that springs, uh, springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus says, okay, listen, forget all of that. I can give you water that has everlasting life, and you'll never thirst again. Now, this sounds like a wonderful idea. I never have to come down to this well and draw water out again. I'm in. They didn't just turn the water faucet on in those days and water came out. No, you had to go down to the well, uh, usually in a community place. You had to bring your bucket. You had to fill it up with water, and then you had to haul it back home, all the water that you needed. Now, think about it, ladies. If your job is primarily to care for the house, to clean and bathe the kids and bathe yourself and draw water for your husband so that he can bathe, a lot of what you do is hauling water, right? Right? So she says, hey, I'm about to get out of a lot of work. I don't have to draw water anymore. Tell me, Jesus, I want to know about this water. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. See what she's saying here? I'm about to get out out of all this water. This Jewish guy is about to give me the hookup. Jesus says, go, call your husband and come here. Okay, she said, "Uh, sir, I have no husband. So he says, you have well said, I have no husband. For in fact, you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have, or the one that you're living with, is not even your husband. In this you have spoken truly. So he begins to speak to her about her life. She gets a recognition. Okay, wait a second, something different is going on here. I thought we were talking about water, but you're talking about something else. Welcome to the party, ma'am. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, she takes us back to one of her issues. Okay, um, may I perceive that you're a prophet. The problem with Samaritans in this specific instance was they didn't believe any of the prophets between Moses and the Messiah. So if you, you might be a prophet, but we don't believe what you're saying. We don't believe in you. 
So when she says, I perceive that you're a prophet, she's saying, okay, you're a prophet, but you've got to understand, you worship in Jerusalem and I worship over here, and so I don't even believe that you're right. That's why it's so important at the end of what he's saying to her, she says, um, when the Messiah will come and tell us all things because they're waiting on the Messiah. They don't believe in the prophets in the middle. They're waiting on the Messiah. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Suddenly, revelation hits her. The one we've been waiting for is here. She runs back through the city, and she tells all these Samaritans about Jesus, and they believe her, not because he's a prophet, because he is the Messiah. Okay? So she says, but she brings it back to this issue. You worship in Jerusalem. I worship here on Mount Gerizim. This is a problem because Samaritans were not allowed to worship with the Jews. There was a wall to where they could go no further. We'll talk about it in a moment. It's called the middle wall of separation. And it would separate the Jews from the Gentiles, especially the Samaritans. You had to stay out. You couldn't come in. We couldn't worship together. And Jesus says, listen, well, I, I want to read you his words because he's going to break all this apart. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he said, I'm about to change the deal. It's not about Mount Gerizim and your temple, and it's not about the temple in Jerusalem. Forget all of that. For you worship what you don't know, and we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and here's the key part. Now is. Now everything changes. Uh, the, the separation and the division that came because of our ethnicity now is changing. And where you couldn't have access to God because you were a Samaritan, now everyone is about to have the same access to God. True worship will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He changes the deal. He said, no longer, ma'am. Is it about your ethnicity? No longer is it about where you're from, who you are. No longer is it about the sin that you're currently living in or the mistakes of your past. But everybody is on an even playing field and we all have the same access to the Father. This changes everything. And at, when, we, when we see what Jesus is saying here, we get a picture of the true message of Christ. And held within his message, in the gospel message, is this. That ethnicity can't get you in, and ethnicity can't keep you out. But this is not really a new message. You see in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Genesis 12 and 3, Jesus, or God is speaking to Abraham, and he's blessing Abraham. And he said to him, uh, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I want you to look here at part of God's plan was literally to bless all the nations of the earth. We see this promise repeated in Genesis chapter 18. And then and again in chapter uh, 22, verse 18, God goes further and says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, casting, uh, speaking prophetically, going all the way forward to Jesus, through Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And will have access to the same promises. We are now heirs to the same promises as Abraham, though I'm not a Jew, and many of us in this room are not a Jew, but because of Christ, he brought us all together. So it's, it's not a new plan. 
uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tell, shows us how part of Christ's purpose and his message, it was to tear down the middle wall of separation. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time today. Uh, but, to, but the wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles has been torn down. And Paul teaches us how that the cross is a mechanism of reconciliation. This was the message and the purpose of Christ. This is one of the reasons that he came, was simply to show us this. The same gospel that reconciles us to God reconciles us to each other. So this must become the mission of Christianity. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. This is a verse that many of us know. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of a couple of the nations that you really like. Is that what he says? Go and make disciples of all the nations that look just like you and talk just like you and have the same culture as you. No, no, no. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And then he goes further and he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as you study the concept of baptism and the teaching of baptism, you'll learn that we are literally all being baptized into Christ. We are all being baptized together through the body of Christ. And so now we are all becoming one in Him. And so here's what he's saying. Listen, go and share this message of reconciliation with everybody so that the walls of division and the walls of separation and the three great prejudices that have, that have, that have troubled this world since it's in Inception that they would all be broken down and my people could come back together and that I, through Christ, could bless all people. This is the mission of Christianity, to take his message of reconciliation to everyone. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one of my favorite verses of Scripture, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Jesus now, he's about to be ascended into heaven. He's already died on the cross, uh, been resurrected from the grave. He's been on the earth for, for, for several weeks. And he's about to be ascended into heaven. The last thing he says to his disciples, he's told them to go and wait in Jerusalem uh, for the Holy Spirit, the Comforter to come. And when he comes, you're going to receive power when he comes upon you. And that power is going to come for a purpose. And here it is, that you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, many times when we look at this scripture, and correctly so, we see um, the, uh, the different relationships that we have in our life, the relationships that are closest to us. Maybe it's our family and friends. That would be Jerusalem, the people closest to us. Then you go to Judea. That might be our city uh, or our state or our nation. Then you go into Samaria, and that's the, even people even further out, and to the ends of the earth, and that is meaning let's go reach everyone with this message of Christ. How many of you have heard that before? Uh, and that is very, very, very much a truth of what's, what Jesus is saying here. But I want us to look back in the context of what we're studying right now, what we now know about the Samaritans and about the Jews, and let's look back at what he says. Put the verse back up there for me again. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. This was their people. This was the people that were like them. This was the people that, were, that had the same core values as them, that worshipped the same way, that thought the same way. Okay, This is the Jews. And in Judea, this is their country. This is uh, you know, people that lived around. So they may have a little different culture, but we still believe the same way. We still follow the same way. But watch what's next. And Samaria, the people that you hate and hate you. 
Jesus right here is literally commanding us and promising us to be empowered that if you'll take this message and you you have to take this message across the lines of people that do not like you that hate you and maybe you hate them uh, but this message has to even go to them and then take it to the ends of the earth and this is the people that you may or may not have had dealings with before but they're probably not like you they may look different and smell different and talk different and eat different food have a different culture and you they may not be your enemies but they're very different to you and Jesus says take it to all of them think about that for a moment i want to take i want you to take this message to everybody that's just like you and everybody that you hate and everybody that's different well, in Acts chapter 2, as you uh, probably know, the, the disciples and, the, and the, uh, the 120 were gathered in the, in the room there, and they're, they're praying, and they're believing, and the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens, and when it does, it touches people, men who had gathered from all nations, and in that moment, God literally sends his message out into the world. He chose that moment, that, that time, that feast of Pentecost, because people were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the earth where they had been scattered and then lived, but they had gathered there, and now his message is being sent out. Uh, on another time, I want to talk to you about how that in this moment, God reverses uh, the curse that happened at the Tower of Babel where he changes our language and causes divisions. Now God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, brings us back together. As you study through the book of Acts, you see where this really begins to happen. In Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches to the Athenians uh, about we are all one blood. We are all one blood. And in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13, he, he talks about and we read about in the book of Acts the city of Antioch and the church that's, go, that's being built in the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch was the third largest city in the known world at the time. Uh, historians tell us that there were approximately 500,000 people living in Antioch. Uh, now, you might find numbers anywhere as low as 200,000, as high as 700,000, but most historians believe that about 500,000 people lived in Antioch. It was a powerful, thriving, growing city. In that city, however, it was uh, walled off into four quadrants. And inside each of those quadrants were as many as 18 recognizable ethnicities living in groups there, in pockets. So they lived among their own, but they all lived within the walls of Antioch or within those quadrants. So it is to this city that the church goes. It is in the city of Antioch where we, we are first called Christians. It's where the term was coined and found. Uh, it's believed that the Greeks actually were the first to call us Christians right here in Antioch. So here is the church uh, desperately trying to be built in a city that is incredibly multi-ethnic and multicultural. And, and what are we supposed to do? What do you think is going to happen? Here's what happens. Not only does the church survive, but it actually thrives. And out of about 500,000 people, historians tell us, theologians tell us that they believe there at one time there were up to 100,000 Christians living in the city. Not only did the church survive in multicultural environments, 
it thrived and grew and expanded and became a base of operations for the New Testament church. It's from this city that Paul is launched out into his mission fields uh, on his three missionary journeys. It didn't always go well for him. At one point, Paul was ran out of Antioch because the leaders didn't like him. But he didn't stop him because God had a work to do, a multicultural, multi-ethnic work to do in that city. And God got his work done. Matter of fact, when you study the leadership in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we get a picture of many of the leaders, and they're from all over the world, uh, different ethnicities of people. Simeon is actually believed to be from a a dark-skinned man from northern Africa, and yet he is a leader in the church there. This is shocking the world. It was shaking the world, this message of reconciliation. It became the mission of the church, the mission of Christianity to bring reconciliation. Can I get a great big amen? And it's still our mission today. Uh, It's still a part of what we must do. The same gospel that reconciles us to God reconciles us to each other. In 1983, 30 years ago now, Triumph Church was founded. And in those early days of triumph, God spoke to my father on this message, on Christ's heart and message of reconciliation And I remember even as a young boy, memories of my father as he knelt at the feet of some of the leading African-American pastors in our community and washing their feet and praying and, and asking forgiveness in an effort to reach a community that people said couldn't be done, that there's no way that African-American people and white people can worship in the same church, not in Southeast Texas. It can't happen here. Uh, Maybe up north somewhere, maybe in a different city, but but not here with the roots of prejudice that uh, and the strongholds of prejudice that had happened here. But God spoke and he gave us a mission and he gave us a mandate. And even today, many say it's not being done in this area and it can't be done in this area. But I invite them to walk through the doors of any one of our Triumph Church campuses and look around, they will quickly find that they are wrong. Today, Triumph is largely uh, African American. It's in our culture. It's in our heritage. It's in our DNA. It can't be any other way because this is who we are. This is what God has called us to be. We are diverse in our music. We are diverse in our leadership. And we are diverse in the voices who speak to us. We are a diverse congregation, multicultural and multi-ethnic. Because fundamental to being spirit-filled is being multicultural. I just read to you from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, how the Holy Spirit was sent to empower us to break down these walls and deliver the, to deliver the gospel. We have to reflect our community. We have to reflect the nationalities and the cultural groups in our community. We have multiple different groups uh, that worship with us in any of our campuses. And as we look forward in the future, uh, we have to continue to break down the walls of prejudice that divide us and keep us apart. But ladies and gentlemen, it is bigger than just a black and white issue. There are many other cultures that we have to continue to reach and look to and do our part uh, to reflect our community. We have to reach the world. God has called us to be a voice to the nations, and it starts in our community. We have to be not just a multicultural church, but we have to be an international church. 
And this is a challenge as we move forward into our future. I want to I challenge you and speak to your spirit that we have to continue to reach out uh, to every group of people represented in, this, in our community, our cities, our, in, in southeast Texas. God spoke to us a few years ago and said we were going to begin to start a campus in Sugarland. Many of you know this story. And so we began to pray about what God would do. And we knew that God was sending us to, to Sugarland. And we were really excited about that. Bishop Tudor Bismarck, who is one of the men who helps to cover and lead uh, our churches, he was flying in on a plane into Houston. As he was landing, he said God spoke to him and showed him a vision. He saw a building uh, in the Houston area that was our building. It was already there. It was already a church. All we, had to dust, all we had to do was dust off the pews. And he said, I saw in there a, an international church with people represented from all over the nations coming together and worshiping God. Another prophet came through and spoke to us, Kim Clement, and he said, we thought it was going to be in Sugarland." And he said, Sugarland is not the place, but it is near Sugarland." Well, as it turns out, the building, that, the, the door that God opened was for a building that is not in Sugarland, but it's actually in the city of Stafford, which is the neighboring city there, and that's where our building now is. It was a church. We dusted off the pews. We fixed it up, and now we have an international church worshiping there right now with people from all over the world coming together, representing their nation, but coming together as one to worship God. But here's the incredible thing. I'm going to show you a picture here. We didn't even know this. This just happened. We, didn't even, we were just looking for a building. We weren't trying to fulfill prophecy. We were just looking for a building. As you come into town, uh, you see this sign right here. My dad took this picture for me this morning. I wish he had gotten a little closer so we could read the green sign there. Uh, but here's what it says. It says, West Belfort Avenue, next signal. But on the very top, it says, International District. We bought this building several years ago not even knowing that this sign would go up and we were building right in the middle of the international district in Houston. How cool is God? This is our mission and this is our mandate. We're already seeing the fulfillment of it in the Sugarland campus and it is in the middle of the international district. Uh, so it may uh, be seen much easier there. But this is a challenge to every one of our campuses, and I believe to every Christian, we have to reach all nations. The Bible says, God spoke in Psalm chapter 2, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. We're asking God for the nations in this season. I am challenging every member of Triumph Church to look to higher heights, to look out beyond even what we know, even the miraculous things that have happened in the last 30 years right here in this church, right here in this campus. I am asking us to look even further and take the next step and to be international. Not just two or three cultures, but international. And I, want, I don't want to downplay what God has done at all. It has been nothing short of a miraculous journey and one that I'm so grateful for. But as we look forward in the future, we've got to continue to strive forward. As Paul said, we've got to continue to press towards the mark. I'm challenging your heart and your spirit for you to continue to look outside the walls of your own ethnicity and your own culture, people you might be comfortable with, but even walk across the walls 
walk across to the Samaritans, the ones who we may not like and may not like us, but the gospel is for them too. In a moment, I'm going to lead us into prayer as we close today. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer to ask God. We're going to, he said, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So we're going to ask of God. We, uh, we, Lord, we're just going to ask you what is exactly written in your word. We're asking you for the nations. And, and that's what we're going to do. We believe that he's going to give them to us as an inheritance. That we might share the gospel and worship together. And as, as you study the book of Revelation, I, I want to be a church that represents the church that John saw in Revelation. Where people from all over the world were worshiping, worshiping together as one. So I, I want to pray over that, and I want you to join with me as we speak and we prophesy over the future of Triumph Church. How many of you want to do that with me? Can you see a vision? Can you see a picture coming together? The second thing I want to pray for is that even today, even as we stand on this historic weekend, as I told you about this morning, even today there are families and people that have been hurt and divided because of the pain of prejudices. And I want to ask God to release healing power to those hurts. The bitterness and the pain and the sorrow, the frustration, the, 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 all the things that go along with it. And I don't have time to preach a whole message on it this morning, but you know if I'm talking to you, may the Holy Spirit touch you right now and begin to heal that. Would you stand with me? I want to ask my pastors to come and join me on the stage this morning. We're missing a few of them today out working and things, but I want to ask them uh, to join me and uh, as a sign of unity.